0: All right,
1: let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the ears? What the fuckadelics? What's happening? Look, folks, be safe. Wear your fucking mask. I'm not telling you. I mean, you know, I I go on a hike. I go on a hike and uh, I bring my mask. I got it on my chin. And I don't see no people on the trail coming at me for, you know, 20, 30 feet or at all. Not wearing it. If I see someone coming 20, 30 feet away, put the mask on. We all put our mask on. Nod. If someone's not wearing a mask, they're coming at me and they're looking, giving me the stink eye under my breath or in my mind. I'm like, hey, I might have it, dude. I'm helping you out. Why are you giving me the shit face? Stupid. Don't give me the shit face. You think I want to wear this? I'm wearing this so I don't fucking kill you with my fucking dandelion virus. Coming out of my mouth. Who knows? Today on the show, George Lopez, I'm going to talk to George Lopez. Okay? I'm going to talk to George Lopez. George Lopez, I've known of. I've met a few times. I've seen him around over the years, but he did give me a ride from the airport in his limo once. Didn't have to do that. Could have just big time me. Nice seeing you, man. Good to meet you again. I got to go. Nope. Said, I'll give you a ride. Went to his house first and had the driver drop me at my house. And I had to remind him of that during our conversation. I will be talking to George Lopez shortly. Hey, I just wanted to thank all the people. I I went to my P.O. box. Hadn't been there in a while. Thank you for all the cards. Like, these are you, you guys who write the cards. Like, someone brought you up. Well, you know what to do. I didn't know people wrote cards anymore. And I've been getting some at the house. I get some from fr- people I know. But there were just a... Just dozens at the at at my PO box, from just people like you guys and writing nice cards. It's really a beautiful thing. Lynn used to write cards, thank you cards. I got to figure out how to be a person. I really do. I want I want to. That's what I want to learn. I want to learn how to be a person that does things nice things. I think I can do it. Don't you? Yeah, I think so. I went and did the COVID test here in LA like every other person. I was told that there was a place I could go pay for, pay 125 bucks, get one, results, you know, in a half hour. And I'm like, no, I want to go through the regular person thing. I don't need special treatment. That sounds like a racket anyways. But I called them because I was I was online on the traffic line waiting for the regular one. And I'm like, wow, this looks like it could be a few hours. So I just said, well, look, if you got an opening, like in the next 15, 20 minutes and you, or in the next hour or so, call me up. But they never called, and I went all the way through the big, long line at Dodger Stadium. I had that experience. I had the COVID-19 test experience at Dodger Stadium, like many Angelenos. You get there. They've got videos for you to tell you what to do. They give you a bag with your um, toys in it. You get you got the swabber toy. You get the uh, test tube with the uh, liquid in it toy and uh, baggies. Um so I did that, dropped it off. I haven't heard from him. Everyone I've talked to said like two, like one or two days, and it's been, well, you know, it was two days. I'll know, I'll know. But yeah, I got to be honest with you. I don't think I have it. I do not think I do. And if I do, uh, it seems I, it seems I might have the the better one to have. And also, if I do, by the time I get my fucking test results, I'll be more than halfway through. My quarantine. But I, I don't think I do because here's my deal. You know where, I'm at. I'm in a lot of uh, grief that comes and goes, and I've got a sick cat. And I let the grief happen as much as I can, but I do stifle a lot of feelings. And that means, like, that shuts down my, my chest. I'm a guy who holds stress in their chest. And if I'm trying to shut down feelings, I'll have a hard time breathing. Here's how I know it's probably not COVID is when I cry, my chest opens up. Is that Maybe that's the treatment that they're missing. People need to just, they need to cry to kill it. I don't want to trivialize that at all. its I, I never really put it together until I was talking to my friend, Michaela Watkins, and I've done it my whole life one way or the other, that if I have some big overwhelming fear or feelings or something that's out of my control that's causing me pain or panic or dread that or fear those are i guess all different words for it what i'll do is i will make it about me i will personalize it i will i will make something as extreme usually around my mortality or around some sort of sickness every time i've done a big show before i've done a a special or a a letterman appearance or anything either i'll think that i'm losing my voice or that i'm getting a cold sore and sometimes i've managed to almost manifest both of those things And if I'm just terrified of something, or there's just this horrible feeling of loss and pain and dealing with the anxiety of monkey right now, it's like I just will develop symptoms. I will decide I have COVID or I have lung cancer, I'm having a heart attack. Because if I can make my fear something I have control over, like obviously I don't have control over really having those things. But I can I can go get a test, or I can get through it, or I can realize that I'm being crazy, or whatever. Something that I can do something about, then it, it there it's somehow comforting to me, or it's somehow grounding, or it's somehow it makes it easier for me to process. That's easier for me to process. But ultimately, it's avoidance, and it's a weird thing that my brain does, as opposed to sit in the fear or the pain, the sadness, or or the anxiety. Uh, why not? you know, give myself something that I can make up or, or something life-threatening to, uh, obsess about. I, I guess it's a survival, uh, tool, but it seems more to be an avoidance tool. I don't know, but it's something I've done most of my life, most of my life, but here's the thing. Here's what's going on with me and why I'm exhausted. There's a, There's a good possibility I'm deeply emotionally exhausted because I'm sleeping, but I'm not sleeping good. Yeah, I got Monkey, you know, who's, you know, on his last legs. He's mostly sleeping in the closet. And he comes out and he eats and stuff. But, you know, people have been asking about Buster Kitten. Buster Kitten's around, but I'm like, I'm really fucking not treating Buster Kitten that well. Because I'm focused on Monkey and... And to be honest with you, Buster beats the shit out of Monkey, and Monkey is old and frail. And it's really a fucking nightmare. But I got to wake up to hear that old, frail, 16-year-old cat being bullied by this little tank of a black cat who can't stop fucking eating. This little fat... This cat is nuts. It's a fat cat now, and he runs up and down the fucking stairs. And it's not like cat sounds. It's like, kunk, 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 And then I hear like... Ew,
0: ew.
1: And he's fucking with monkeys. So now I got a lock monkey in the goddamn room with litter and food with me at night. Just so his last days can be comfortable and he's not fucking riddled with stress from this little fucking pig cat that like just beats the shit out of him. Now I got a lot of love for Buster, but it is what it is. So that's what's up. That's why my chest is like it is. That's what I believe, but I'll let you know. So Carl Reiner died, and um you can listen to the 2013 uh, interview I did with him. It's available in whatever podcast feed you use, and at wtfpod.com. And you know, I interviewed both him and Mel Brooks. There's a beautiful story on the Carl Reiner episode about the two of them that I also told on Letterman. It's very nice to actually have a personal Mel Brooks, Carl Reiner story. It's one of my favorite things in my life. I was talking to those two guys and. And having what happened, happen. And uh, I'm just so glad that when these people pass, and he lived a good full life, this guy, Carl Reiner. I tweeted, uh, Carl Reiner was great. He was just getting started. Life is unfair. And I thought that was a very Carl Reiner-like joke, and he would enjoy it. Um, But he and Mel Brooks were friends. They used to spend, I believe, almost every night together. For for years, they loved each other, and it's a beautiful friendship. And I wanted to play this clip from Rob Reiner. Uh, he, I talked to him in 2016, and and this is obviously Carl Reiner's son, no slouch in the showbiz himself, but uh, he um, he talked about the special thing that Carl
0: and Mel shared.
1: But, you know, I went to your father's house and he says he hangs out with Mel every night. Mel.
0: Mel and my dad, every single night. Really? Every, uh, every night? Uh, yeah, virtually every night. That's really something. Listen, it's wonderful that they have each other. They met each other when they were in their 20s yeah. doing the you know, yeah. show of shows. And to have that kind of bond, and that bond to stick, and they make each other laugh, they yeah. enjoy each other's company. They both lost their spouses yeah. recently, so they have that. And they'd say that, that, you know, they watch any movie that has secure the perimeter in it. <laughs> they, they watch it. Do you go over there? Do uh, you- yeah. I've been over there. I was over there one time when they got into a huge fight. Over uh, it was an appearance that Mel did on on the on the Carson show, and and uh, they were arguing about it was like the Sunshine Boys. Yeah. They're arguing about who got the you know which line got the biggest laugh. And Mel was a guy who was played a uh, an expert on wine. could yeah. detect any wine. And they blindfolded him. They gave him a glass of wine. He tasted it. and He went, mm, I think it's a red. It's a it's a Cabernet. It's 1970. And Carson says, No, no, that's not. It's not. He says, Okay, wait a minute. Let me try. He takes another sip. Oh, yes, it's a red. It's a Bordeaux. It's a 1980. No, it's not that. He says, all right, let me taste it in. Okay, I got it. It's a white. And and that was a big laugh. And then Mel says, that's the line that got the big laugh. And I said, no. My dad says, no, it was the line after that. It was the line after. He takes another sip and he says, oh, I, I know what it is. It's chicklets. And and that got a big laugh too and and my and Mel said, "No, but the but the white wine got the bigger." My dad says, yes, yeah, but it's not as funny as the chicklets because here's a guy who was a wine expert who couldn't tell the difference between a liquid and a solid." That's the funny part. So they yelled at it, yelling at each other. <laughs> and you're sitting there I'm watching I'm sitting there. I love it. Love it. Beautiful. Rest
1: in peace, Carl Reiner. What a tremendous gift your presence was all these years in uh in the world of comedy and show business and also just as a decent human being so george lopez um as i said earlier we we've met but we never really talked and uh he has a new netflix special uh we'll do it for half uh is streaming now and um i talked to him in just a second george what's up brother how you doing man
2: good 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 i'm good what do you got on the wall there you guitar player i like i dabble a little bit let's say uh santana model there the green one and then the other one is, is just a les paul and there's some crazy ones in here upstairs van halen uh i got a couple from van halen that are awesome upstairs with those taped up stratocaster ones one of those uh, uh models but then he gave me one for my birthday that was one of the four black stealth guitars that he was playing on this last tour. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. So how long you know Eddie? Um, He's been at that club, that lakeside, for – you know, as a golfer for like twenty years, he never showed up. And then we met in two thousand nine and I said, Hey man, you ever go play? Said, I haven't played in years. So I said, Let's go play one morning. You know, he gets up early, he doesn't have much to do. Yeah. And I said, You want I said, You want to warm up or anything? You want to hit a ball? He hasn't swung the club in twenty years. He hey. goes up there, boom, right down the middle. Of course it's like gambling. You go to Vegas, you win the first time and then right. after that it, no good. But he would he he loved it. I mean, he loved being out there. And he kind of worked at the game. Uh-huh. So it was good to see somebody that you respect also, you know, as meticulous about golf and wanting to do good as he is about, you know, music and getting everything right. How's he feeling? You know, I think he's he's hung in there pretty well. You know, he's taken a lot of treatments in these last few years. But, you know, he's a tough dude, man. And he he's he's uh, he's getting by. It. Yeah.
1: So tell me, like, about golf, because, like, I'm one of these guys like, you know, I know guys love it. And uh, I, I kind of understand it, like if I think about it, why it would be a nice thing, but I still don't give
2: a fuck. What, why not? You know, there, there's That's a school of thought, too, for golf. You know, a lot of people don't give a fuck about golf, but it depends on, you know, there's a familiar aspect to it, like guys who play with their fathers, oh, yeah. who play with their buddies, guys who maybe played casually at, at public golf courses. Like, you know, when I was growing up, I didn't have a father, my grandfather never really did anything together. We'd go to baseball games, but not anything we had to spend any time with someone. Yeah. So on Christmas Day of uh, 1981, my buddy that I grew up with, Ernie, says to me, hey, man, let's go golf. And it's like 1.30. I'm like, where? Up here in Silmar at El Carrizo. I go, they're closed. He's like, no, they're open. And I I called them. They're open. They I, We don't have clubs. Well, we don't rent clubs. <laughs> yeah. So we rent clubs. We hit some golf balls. We didn't know what we were doing. We had some tall 32-ounce silver bullets plowed, we were 19, plowed some of those away, <laughs> yeah. laughing, bullshitting, yeah. and you know what? It, cha- it changed my life. It, it taught me all the things that were wrong with me that needed to be corrected, that I didn't have a male figure or an adult invest their time in me, because I would always quit because it was really hard, and I wasn't that natural at it, and yeah. when it got really hard, I'd, I'd make an excuse to leave or I'd pick the ball up, but... Uh, um those were the things that taught me temperament and taught me that when shit got tough, not to quit, which is what my baseball coach told me when I was a senior that nose to nose and my buddies behind me, they were tripping out. They never seen a student and a teacher fucking go at it. And he's like, you know what? You're a quitter and you're always going to be a fucking quitter. And when the shit gets tough, remember he said, you pack it in. I go, is that right? He's like, that's right. Nose to nose. That's right. Cause you're a quitter and let's see where you good luck. You know, let's see where you get in life. And I started playing golf, and I started quitting. And one day, I picked up and I left. And in the car, it's almost like you could see him. Yeah. I pulled over to the side of the road, and I said, motherfucker. I said, man, wow. <laughs> and I went back to the school. I hadn't seen him in four years, and he's looking at me. And he's like, is that my third baseman? I said, what's up, coach? And he's like, what you doing here? And I went over there to apologize to him for the way that I treated him when I was a student. And really? <laughs> he couldn't believe that four years later. I was, And I would never done that, Mark. I'd never – really apologize to somebody face-to-face because usually if I was drunk and I pissed somebody off or I said something to somebody or I treated somebody bad, I just eliminated them from my life, never tried to run into them again or never tried to see them again. But with that advice that that guy gave me, I don't think I could have continued my life without telling that guy that I appreciate you even though I didn't want to hear it at that time, that you may have given me the, the one key advice that I could use the rest of my life.
1: That's a wild story. So it's just stuck in your head in that moment, huh?
2: And then, you know, we didn't talk for years, and he passed away like two years ago. So I was trying to recall the story. He had Parkinson's. He was a little demented. And he's like, I don't remember that. And I'm like, are you sure it was me? Black motherfucker. Yes, it was you. So I try to get all sympathetic, you know, and he's like, "Uh, I don't remember any of that shit. All
1: right, So, that, so that's uh, that's sort of a – it taught you temperament and tolerance and follow-through and everything else. Yeah. And yeah. now you just like – you just enjoy playing now. You got – do you shoot – are you good?
2: Well, uh, you know, I'm about a 12 handicap, but I played like – you know, I used to grow uh, – I grew up alone, so I grew up early, wake up early in the morning, and then I would watch the British Open, and it started at like 3 o'clock in the morning. So I would, I would get up early. I started to watch golf. I started looking forward to – this golf tournament, the British Open, I would go get some food from this place I still eat at. So I'm maybe 13, 12, 13. I'd walk up there and walk back, get some food. Every year was a ritual thing. I played at all the courses that I watched growing up, and I had we had a seven iron. I don't know where the seven iron came from—a fucking uh, garage uh, sale. And my grandfather used to use it to keep the dog in the backyard. He would put the he would put the seven iron between the wall and the fence because the dog would push the fence and get out. So all of a sudden I start passing this golf club and I'm like, what's this golf club doing here? And I'd go in the morning and pull lemons off of the lemon tree and hit lemons over the fence. If I hit it good, it went over the fence and it it cut it and juice would fly up. And, uh, one day my grandfather says, Come over here. I want to I want you to see something. Look in the alley, there's all these fucking rinds of lemons and limes <laughs> in the back. He's like, get some fuck, go get a fucking trash can and pick this shit up.
1: <laughs> he didn't tell you to go get some uh,
2: some other clubs. <laughs> no, it's just that one. Yeah, just that one. So you grew up with your grandparents? Yeah, my, I didn't know my father. And it's funny, man, because you know, with kids now and Ancestry.com, yeah, and you know, you can 23 and me and everything you could trace. You know, my daughter's 24, but let's say I think it was like six years ago, you know, uh, uh, she, she with her mom, you know, being divorced and her mom, and they found relatives that uh, were on my wife's side. And, uh, you know, they're saying, what's your father's name? You know, I give my father's name. And where did he, you know, where did he, I said, I never met my father. So I'm just going to give you stuff that I kind of know. And just like nothing, you know, and casually, I said, so did you ever find out about my dad? And she goes, yeah, he died. Your dad's been dead for like 30 years wow and, and i'm like hey well you know wow thanks for you know said thanks for putting me down gently and <laughs> like they had no you know you're just looking for fucking results that someone's dead you're just like hey oh oh yeah i thought i told you your dad died like 30 years ago i don't think it was the the right person right but even if he was living i don't think i'd get involved with him
1: no. I mean, I wonder yeah. about that. Yeah, well, yeah, because why now? I mean, how how would that help anything?
2: You know, it was tough, Mark. You know, when you're a kid and you're playing little league and you're the kid that always has to get a ride home from somebody and if there's no room in to walk, and you know, my grandmother was so fucking tight. Like, you know, every every week, every kid has to bring snacks. Yeah. And my grandmother would be like, Hey grandma, we have to stop at the store to get some for what? For your tip bullshit. And then every every week, every game. <laughs> Every other guy on the team has some juices and some, you know, licorice yeah. or some potato chips and every the fucking week that is my week, they're like, I didn't I don't have anything. Well, you know your your grandmother's supposed to bring snacks, but yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> so where 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 where'd your mom go? My mom was not the most stable person. Yeah. And uh she that she was having a hard time mentally, you know, she was epileptic and you know, uh, she was tough to be around, man. And she's almost like childlike. You know, if oh, I yeah. told her, I don't want to go to school. She's like, don't go. We'll just go outside and play. Like, you don't know, <laughs> play with your mom in the backyard. She's still around? She lives in Sacramento, I believe. But it was awful. You know, it's awful, man. It's awful not to have, you know, it's tough to not have siblings. But when you're surrounded by people who either ignore you or they're awful people to be around, it's fucking tough, man.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, how, how are you going to come into your
2: own? How are you going to become a person? My grandmother my grandmother caught me writing a, a threatening note to myself. So I, I don't think I've ever told this story. She comes up behind me. She goes, what the fuck are you doing? First of all, all this shit runs down your whole body. And she grabs this letter and she's like, you better tell George that we're going to kick his ass if he comes to school and we're going to beat the fuck out of him. And you know what he thinks? And I was writing that to myself to have her find it to try to get some attention. So she found it and found out that I was writing a threatening letter to myself and looked at me like I was the most disturbed fucking person she'd ever seen. So you're writing a note to yourself. No, what, what you're, you're writing a note to beat yourself up. And you're just like, uh, that like was it's, a, a, it's a cry for attention. Yeah,
1: that was a plan, though, so you would get some attention from her? Yeah. Our...
2: They would just ignore me. Get fuck. I mean.
1: Oh, my uh, God. So they didn't want you. They just took you because you had nowhere else to go?
2: I didn't have nowhere else to go. And listen, my mom, I took a, I took a bus ride from San Fernando, California, to Sacramento on a Greyhound. My mom always went Greyhound in the early 70s. I was maybe 13. And she bought me a Playboy magazine to look at on the bus. And that may have single-handedly been the absolute worst thing that she could have fucking given me. (laughs) How old were you? 13. Jacking off behind houses and and fucking (laughs) in the garage. You know, just every chance you could get the fire off. Yeah. ah, Yeah. Set me up for relationships where already you're remotely removed from people. Yeah. Now, if you can satisfy yourself, why would you need anybody else around?
1: Yeah. So that that was it. She she that she uh, ruined your brain.
2: Lonnie Chin was the centerfold. Lonnie Chin. Oh, you remember? I guess you don't. How put them? You know, you you're kissing the magazine you know, and catch the catcher. Other time they called me kissing the fucking TV. On it was on channel thirteen. It was on. When You'd watch, like, you know, uh, Gomer Pile and yeah. Gilligan's Island, yeah, and uh, they had those Chris Craft Cro- commercials for if you wanted to buy a boat, and I'm leaning in to kiss the TV, and my grandfather comes behind me, hit my lip against the TV, and back then, you know, had all those had all those rays that if it got wet, you see little rainbow, rainbows, electrodes, you know, rainbows, and he's like. Fucking kissing that TV. No, he goes over there He looks to the side. You can see saliva on the TV. Like, shit, <laughs> fucking kissing the TV. <laughs> they- All before I was 15, by the way. Oh, my God. And uh, you were the only kid in the house? The only kid in the house. It was awful, man. But did you have cousins and shit? I had some cousins, but they didn't like me because my grandmother was raising me. And uh, they were just tough people. And Oh, my uh, God. Think, what, uh, where'd you grow up? What part of it? I think I'm making it sound more fun than it was. <laughs> oh I, grew up in, I, I grew up in the San Fernando Valley in this track home uh, right by uh, Brand Park, right by the uh, 5 Freeway in San Fernando Mission. But the, great, the saving grace for my childhood was that in that cul-de-sac, there was a lot of cul-de-sacs in that area, that I met some of the guys that I'm still friends with today. And had it not been for those guys living there. I'm not sure how bearable life would have been at that, at that time. Was, I mean, kids, my ethnicity, kids, my age. And just if, if anything went right growing up, that did.
1: Oh, that's good. You, you got in with the right guys, not the
2: wrong yeah. guys. And they're still your friends. So my friends, you know, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, we're talking about, you know, violence and the police and all that stuff. You know, uh, I had a friend of mine, Kenny Ramirez. He was shot, uh, in, I believe, 1980, he was 19, 20 years old. I grew up with him. I knew him from kindergarten. And uh, his brother, Chris, uh, Kenny was working Kenny was working in, at Lockheed and Burbank night shift. So his brother, Chris, and a couple other guys that Chris was younger brother hanging out, they uh, uh, dropped him off in Burbank. And then they went purse snatching in Beverly Hills. I should say allegedly. They allegedly went purse snatching in Beverly Hills, and they grabbed this lady's purse that was standing there waiting for the light to change. And the lady didn't let go of the purse; she hung on. And they dragged the lady alongside the car. And while they were chasing the car, one of the guys got the license plate number down. Called Beverly Hills police. They tracked it down to uh, San Fernando, and they were laying kind of a stakeout with some cars there. They go and pick Kenny up around 1.30. They get back about two o'clock in the morning. He gets out of the car. I guess those guys used to go play pool or drink after the guy had a pool table. So he goes, I'll be right back. He get he gets out of the car, a cop car goes by LAPD, Foothill Division, Rodney King division. It goes down, you know, without the lights on, gets to the end, circles back without the lights on. He's coming out of his house and they say, Hey Kenny, watch out doing the cops are right here. So at the end of his driveway down the, the, you know, where the car starts to come up meets the street, Yeah, uh, that cop opened, there's two cops in the car, opened the door and fired and hit him over the right eye, dropped him. They said he fell so close, he almost hit the bumper of the police car and all these other cars swarm in and he was gone. I mean, and they kind of bargained the brother over what the penalty would have been for the officer. So, you know, I, I, I dealt with that and still even now, you know, I was a little bit, I was out of town a little bit and then as I came in, you start to see the beginnings of what were the Black Lives Matter protests. And I got emotional, man, because, I mean, here's this dude that went away and uh, with no, with nothing, just became another statistic. And then now, these years later, you see kids out there holding up these signs and families and kids on their shoulders about lives, you know, and about people being killed senseless by, by the police. And, I mean, I was emotional because, I mean, I, I thought we were going to grow old with this dude. This guy was like, and I don't think I'd ever, even now, it's like, how many years have passed? To think about, you know, all the stuff that we wanted to do or we used to talk about even being, I was a, being a comedian yeah. to for him to have seen all this or just to see us go old. I mean, i take those guys to the Laker games. I take them to Dodger games and of all the guys that I grew up with, he's the one dude that's missing.
1: That's sad, man. Yeah.
2: So add that with that incredible childhood
1: Well, so how'd you start? Like, you know, did you like to did you like to watch comedy to get you out of your shit? Or how'd you start thinking about comedy?
2: You know, I started watching, you know, the Midnight Special. Oh, yeah, I started. I started.
1: Don Kirshner.
2: Don Kirshner's uh, 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 Midnight Special rock show. uh, um, uh, and I started to see, uh, you know, Cheech and Chong albums and guys that were older had older brothers they'd let us listen to Richard Pryor on an album. You sit in the living room drinking and you're listening to this, you know, voice and you're imagining all this stuff. Yeah. And uh, so from that, and then Sanford and son, the tonight show with Johnny Carson, Chico on the man, like in 73, when I saw Freddie Prince, I, I was just like, man, what's this dude? At least he's Hungarian, Puerto Rican, but you know, wanting to do, you didn't even know a standup's a profession, but wanting to do that at 11 and then seeing this guy at 13 he wasn't he wasn't around that long He was around till january of 77 but it had such a tremendous impact on me because it was like the first person that i had in my life that i could look forward to seeing even though i didn't know him. right but it, it gave me almost a connection and uh um i think it was a little bit of that and then at san Fernando high when i was a senior in high school my buddy ernie went to kennedy And uh, they had written about this guy named Don Nielsen, who was uh, going to the comedy store in Westwood on Monday night. So he was written up in the school paper. And then he brought me the school paper. And he's like, look at this dude's doing stand up. He's a senior in high school. You and I ought to go out there and we ought to we ought to try it, man. You ought to try to go up there and see if you can do it on a Monday night. I did. Don
1: Nelson. What happened to that guy?
2: Don Nelson was a little bit of an actor. He was doing some Budweiser commercials uh, in, the, in the 80s. Yeah. And I think he was still doing a little stand-up. I don't remember if I met him, but he was at that time the epitome of the tweed jacket with the patches oh, and yeah. then the, the knitted tie yeah, and, and the khakis. And he just looked he just looked perfect. And back at that time, you know, Joey Gaynor was at the Comedy Store in Westwood, Holly Mandel, Tim Thomerson, Ollie Joe Prater, Shanlin, um uh, and and though and those guys that you know, John Fox, late seventies, oh, late seven seventy nine, summer yeah. of seventy nine, yeah. and even though I didn't really know those guys, I was kind of around. But to see those guys at that time, and then uh, you know to go to the comedy store on on uh, on Sunset and just hang out, and you know you see you see uh, 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 David Letterman there, I saw Pryor there, I saw Robin Williams, you know, G. Yakov. So at those times, almost now, if you look back, those guys almost seem like you know, uh, uh, um, you know, icons or dinosaurs amongst amongst, you know, humanity that those guys now are so iconic. Yeah, that that they almost look like they didn't exist. It's been so long.
1: That's true. Except that, you know, you can still go see Yakov.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> And, you know, he's the first dude. He's the first dude. He used to go to the comedy store. Danny Mora he had a workshop at the comedy store, Cross Street. In, in the original room, but then sometimes across the street in that annex. Yeah. And we we went in there early, and Yakov Smirnoff was on stage. He did an hour, his show, verbatim, where he would even look into the audience and go, "How, how how's your name? Even look at the chairs. That dude had it down. I'd never seen anybody do it like that since. There's a lot of guys <laughs> that, you know, Denny Johnston still yeah. does the same stuff. But the fact that this guy could Feel an hour in an empty showroom talking to the chairs and knowing what chairs to talk to as an 18 year old kid fucking blew me away, man. It's like, what the fuck is this guy doing?
1: Like it's all planned. That's where you learn the trick for some of those guys.
2: You make it look like improv.
1: Yeah. So he, he's doing a whole other thing now. I mean, I guess he got his degree in, uh, Psychotherapy. He does a whole man and women and psychology trip. like Because you know the Russian thing don't fly anymore. <laughs>
2: you know, he went the... to Branson. Then he had his own theater in yeah. Branson.
1: Yeah, and he went. Yeah. And he went to graduate school. And he yeah. Now he's got this whole other men and women thing. Not like what a country. It's about you know. Oh. So it's more of a one man show, you know?
2: What a country was pretty good. He some pretty good ones. Pretty yeah. good, so man. Come, because I come here, I land at the airport, I see a billboard that says Smirnoff. I'm like, what a country. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you were going, so you started going over to Westwood when you were like 18 or 19? I just turned 18. I went, I went on Cinco de Mayo in 1979. I was still in high school. Me and my buddy Ernie went on a Saturday night. We went in there. Uh, they would let you in if you were 18. I saw. Uh, all those guys. I saw Yakov. I saw Danny Morrow for the first time and saw some others. I saw Fox and uh, Lois. Uh, Bromfield. Bromfield. Um, uh, like that. So I followed Danny Morrow to the sidewalk. I followed him outside. And I said, hey, man, he's wearing a Laverne Shirley hoodie. He's riding on Laverne Shirley. Yeah. He still has that that leather bag. He probably still has it to this day. The yeah. Same bag. And I said, hey, man, you know, I'm a, I, I want to be a comedian too. And, he, and, you know, he's like, oh, yeah, well, well you know, what's your style? I said, I don't have a style yet, but I, like, I'm, I want to be like you. And that motherfucker spent the next 10 minutes telling me how I couldn't be like him and how I've had to find my own identity and how you just can't walk up to somebody and say, you want to be a comedian and you want to be like that person. Yeah. And I was like, fuck. All right. <laughs> I didn't take It easy.
1: It sounds like between him and your uh, little, and your baseball oh, coach, you got fuck, some good these guys,
2: fucking gems, fucking diamonds <laughs> in the rough. These guys, <laughs> How many Latino guys were there really working there around then? At that time, there was uh, Angel Salazar from New York. Check it out. Check it out. And then uh, I was at the comedy store on Sunset. Yeah. When Angel, by the time Angel's done, it looks like a goddamn flea market behind him. Oh, yeah, dude. So when he says goodbye, the next 10 minutes is him putting shit back in his bag. And then Eddie Murphy walks up behind him. Yeah, and now as he has his back turned, this place is going fucking crazy. Eddie Murphy goes in there with a leather jacket, fucking sleeves rolled up, it's hot as fuck. And nobody. And the thing that's funny is that Angel hasn't seen that Eddie Murphy is standing behind him yet. So as he's gathering his shit, he looks up and he's just like this. And now everybody's truly fucking rolling. And he goes, "Check it out!" Like, fucking like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's like Eddie Murphy. Check it out. That's hilarious. Uh, I saw. I saw. I saw. Um, Jesse Aragon the last night of his life. He was down at the. we were down at the comedy store on a Monday night. He was driving a motorcycle and he got hit on the side of the freeway that night. Oh, man! By 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 a truck that was you know they drive too close to the inside lane. Like, yeah. Crazy shit, man. The greatest. The, the greatest thing about about Jesse Aragon. Yeah. Is now when you start to do one nighters in the car, somebody's driving. Like I work. I still work during the day. He didn't, so he really didn't have the a a car that was reliable. So we go up to I think the San Luis Obispo, and we leave Friday because I'm working. We probably should have left earlier, and we're driving there. We're gonna we're gonna make it. Probably just go straight to the to the the hotel, the ballroom, and he says to me, he's looking through his bag, and he pulls out a bag of oranges that are completely fucking rotten and twisted and black. (laughs) with fruit flies in them. And he goes, it looks like, what the fuck is that? I'm driving. What the fuck is that? He goes, oh man. He goes, I haven't worked. My father goes, we got to stop at the market before we go to the club. Cause I got to buy another bag of oranges. And I said, so what do you do, man? Like before every show you, you buy a bag of oranges. And he, he goes, yeah. I said, why don't you just get some fucking tennis balls and paint them orange and just put them in the orange bag. That motherfucker looked at me like if I had discovered fire, but he just was like,
1: <laughs> you changed, yeah. He changed all that. Uh, so you guys were buddies
2: You used to do one nighters together and then he passed. We used to do one nighters up there, yeah. Lamppost uh pizza the club sewed up in venturas. It's funny, man. I, you know, on a Sunday, you know, I'd invite my friends and it's not glamorous, you know, on a when you're starting out on a Sunday. Yeah. And uh Mark Wilmore uh was up before me and there was a guy in the front row with his foot on the stage uh uh eating popcorn out of a you know one of those you know coconut bowls you know and uh Mark Wilmore says to me if that motherfucker right there is talking I'm gonna beat his ass. So the guy's talking Mark Wilmore is going at him and and he leaves early and then I go up and I tell my buddy I said if this dude is talking shit man I'm gonna go at him and of course he's talking shit. I grabbed that popcorn bowl upside down and I Flung it, and it went like a frisbee. Fucking cut him right here. Yeah. Shows over. Bob Zaney was that was a Bob Zaney gig. The dude's bleeding from a, a slice, like a stuck pig. There's that shit running outside of his face. Yeah. He thinks he's gonna he thinks he's gonna lose an eye. And the next day, Bob Zaney calls me. It's twenty five dollars. And I remember he said, "So you tell me, you think that I you, I should pay you this twenty five dollars, considering what happened last night." And I'm like, you know what, man? Fucking keep that $25. (laughs) He wanted me to decide if I was up there long enough since I threw a fucking bamboo bowl at this guy and cut him over his (laughs) eye. Was I deserve? You tell me. I'll pay you. But you tell me. Do you think you deserve this twenty five dollars? I'm still working during the day, man. I was like, yo, motherfucker, keep your twenty five.
1: Hey, bucks. man, you got to throw a, a bowl at a guy who deserved yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Couldn't do that shit out. No, Could not I, do that shit now. I, Well, that like that. I say that all the time. Back in the day, man, people used to lose their shit on stage, and nobody was the wiser. You know, you saw some people really lose their fucking mind sometimes. You know, to, if you
2: want to see some of the greatest, man, that dude that was playing the guitar, Kenny, whatever that guy's name is, uh, Kenny Lane or some dude. If anybody looks it up on YouTube, it oh, the was guy early hit the guy on. in the head. He's going like this. He's trying to stay. He goes, "Hey, don't come up here, motherfucker!" And you see the guy coming. He grabs that guitar, hits him over the head. The back comes off the guitar. He <laughs> puts it back on like nothing. The back's missing, and you know, everyone's like, "What the?" Fuck? He tries to play it and he goes, You saw him, folks, that guy just came at me and everybody's like, No <laughs> Yeah.
1: That's crazy,
2: man. Crazy shit,
1: man. So when did you start doing uh the T V like one thing I don't know about, there was a time there way back when people gave a shit about, you know, the Mencia thing where I talked to you uh-huh. know, I, I talked to Barsena and I talked to some other cats and there was like I never knew if there was there was there a Latino circuit when you guys were starting out.
2: You know, the thing was that it started, it started like this. Like, I don't think I've ever told my story. Um, um, I would hear, because I didn't go to the comedy store, even though I started the comedy store, I didn't really spend my time there. And I would hear about this doorman that was doing my material. Oh this, like, is, oh, oh,
1: this is this. Okay, yeah. Uh,
2: and and uh, I'm like, who is that? They're like, this is some dude, like Mitzi's driver. He's a comedian. And, you know, Mancia had a little bit of heat in the early 90s, like he was daring, you know, he, you know, he was, he was out there, it was a, a bravado. So, I had already been doing Sunday comics and I had been doing Friday night videos, anything that you could do around, and that was obviously, I was already, I had already married, I was already doing Arsenio's, the, so in 19, 19- You were headlining? Nine, I was kind of starting on the road. And in 1993, he had a one, uh, 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 one night only or half hour. Comedy 95 night, whatever call 95 uh, 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 um, HBO right there. Yeah. So when it premieres the next morning, I have like 40 calls on my, on my answering machine. And they're like, yo, Lope, you got to see this dude. Mess dude's doing your shit. I'm like, where? And on, on that, I got a copy from my lawyer, a copy of his half hour, his HBO special yeah. the half hour. There was, it was a 21 minute special, 14 minutes of his 21 minutes was mine. Jeez. So Holy shit. we went to HBO. But aside from that, I went to the Laugh Factory on a Saturday that week that that happened. And as I pull up to the valet, he's waiting by the valet. And I look at him and I go, it's not the time, man. It's not the time. I just want to talk to you. I go, dude, leave me alone. I said, man, it's not the time. Don't follow me. Follows me inside. I just want to. I said, listen, man, fucking stay away from me. It ain't the time. It ain't the place. We go upstairs. He's like, listen, if you don't understand, I grab this dude with both of my fists, spin him around, throw him into the corner of the uh, laugh factory where you start to take the stairs back by where the DJ is. Yeah. I I get him. I I have both fists in his shirt. I'm picking him up, and I'm going like this. Mark, I was going to throw that motherfucker over the balcony while the show was going on. So I'm back like this, and my wife grabs my arm, and she's like, he's not worth it. You know, leave him alone. And fucking Messiah with his fucking bumblebee fucking body is down on the ground looking for some, you know, metal he was wearing. And I said, man, get the fuck out of here, dude. And uh, I don't think uh, I've seen him maybe once or twice in that time. And it's like, you know, it's all good. It's like, listen, man, I don't have an axe to grind with well, yeah. that dude. It's so long ago. It's almost fucking 30 years ago. I mean, but that dude was uh, about as uh, felonious a uh, joke thief as I've ever, there may have ever been.
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, he had a lot of, he did it to a lot of people. And I guess like, you know, he paid the price. That's for sure.
2: Well, he paid the price. Cause you know, you're now you're the fucking man in the iron mask because, you know, you would hear stories that there was a headliner at the Riviera in Las Vegas, and he closed with that joke where the two kids are eating breakfast, and he goes, how about some fucking oatmeal? And the mom slaps the kid for saying yeah. fuck. And you ask the other kid, what do you want for breakfast? I don't want any fucking oatmeal. So the headliner <laughs> closes the first show with that. Mencia's the host at the Riviera Sharippa's room. He closes with it as he's doing his... Set the beginning of the second show, the headliner comes out of the room. He's literally chasing him in the showroom, trying to catch him for using his shit. It it even goes outside the Riviera. (laughs) So I didn't really work there. And I saw Sharipa early on. And he'd go, Sharipa's like, you probably want to know why I never booked you. And I'm like, uh, yeah, why is that? Why didn't you book? Because you know, I had Mencia, same jokes, half the price.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when you, uh, so you, 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 started out at the comedy store and then what you, you just started touring or how did that go? Like I mean, when did you get I started
2: your- to go on the road? You know, I was working over there at the ice house. So I kind of tried to stay out of Hollywood until oh. I had a little bit of, uh, you know, some legs or consistently, you know, I could be consistently funny. It didn't come natural to oh, me. Oh, You stayed over
1: there at the um, ice house at Bob Fisher's yeah. place.
2: I stayed over there. I worked at Igby's and oh, really you know, the comedy store and the improv, especially the improv on Melrose. a tough room, man. So I stayed out of there. It until is a I tough room. Well, like, oh, I had some consistency. And um, uh, so for a few years, so I was over there hosting the shows on the weekends. Not a bad gig, man. And, I, you know, I got a chance to, you know, get on stage and host this stuff. And, at the Ice know, House. Stuff at the Ice House, yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's like a classic old room. I mean, it's weird. I used to I I, when I was living over in uh, Highland Park, I'd go work there because it was close. And Fisher would let you. you Yeah, you could do an hour there now. I mean, was it ever a a really popular place or was it always sort of off to the side?
2: Yeah, it was pretty popular for the area. I think they pulled from, you know, Pasadena and Altadena. There was nobody from Hollywood. Yeah if it used to come in Steve Bluestein. oh yeah oh this dude Ron Jones and Flame you know Ron Jones and Flame so Ron Jones would go into this box at the end you're fucking magician fitting into a fucking box at the end like nobody knows he's in the fucking box right so he says to me you know when you go up there you know uh, vamp a little because I gotta get out of this box (laughs) so you know, he wraps it up. He said he just disappears and smokies in the box. And the yeah. box looks way too small to for this guy to fit. So nobody is going to assume that he's in the box. Yeah. So I go up there and I said, listen, take care of yourself. We have another show coming in. So if you guys could get out as quickly as you can, I leave the stage. And as I get back there, they say, man, you're supposed to, that dude's still in the box. <laughs> and I look and people are starting to get up and he's in the box. And now we're like, what the fuck? So... He's in the box. Yeah. Probably in the box 35 minutes. Come on. He comes out. He's drenched in sweat. He makes a move for me. grabs my shirt. He's pulling me towards him. He's gonna fucking punch me. He's like, you're supposed to do some time to fight that fucking box. <laughs> so he's in that box waiting for the room to clear. Like he doesn't want to come out so people see he's in the box. Yeah. I forgot.
1: So when did you start doing the big, where the hell, like, I watched the special years a while back. It looked like you were playing the biggest, you know, room in the world.
2: I did one in San Antonio in 2009. I did uh, 85 minutes live at the AT&T Center where the Spurs play. Right. That was, uh, that, that was a long haul, man. There was like 16 and a half thousand people in there. That was crazy, man. That was wild, man. Because you like, that you know, you just try up there trying Owned to manage that room could okay, oh, owned it. Yeah. Imagine, man. And I had them, you know, I had them all in one place. I didn't have any hot spots. I didn't have anybody yelling out yeah. shit. I, ha- I had them. I don't yeah. think you could do that now with politics being the way they are. Yeah. You're going to get some bullshit going on. But I you saw know, you,
1: though. I, you were f- locked in, I man. I was in there,
2: man. Locked in there, brother. <laughs>
1: but I used to see you come up, like, when I was starting out, or not starting out, but, I mean, you're only a couple years older than me, but you used to go up to San Francisco a lot. Oh, when, yeah. That's that why the, I met you guys up there. Yeah, the thing is, the first time I met you in San Francisco. You come yeah. in to head- Comedy on. day,
2: comedy day, comedy day in San Francisco, even though they don't do it anymore, was really one of the one of the coolest things, one of the greatest things that I've ever been a part of to this day was that day in the park and having everybody be cool and everybody from different clubs out there and everybody's trying to bring their best guys and Jose Simone you know, up there, and Ungayo, and all these dudes, you know, all in the same spot. Really the only time you'd ever see those guys all in the same spot. Johnny Steele and Will. Johnny Lopez. Johnny Lopez. Yeah, that's his name. Alex Bennett. Alex Bennett. We met on Alex Bennett. That motherfucker.
1: Oh, my God. He'd just sit there and talk about like anyone else got a stomach uh, ache? I got a stomach ache. Does
2: anyone have a stomachache? Uh, I know, man. <laughs> I saw I was in there one time with Al Goldstein from Screw magazine. Oh, just where a, he was tongue kissing young chicks in there to get tickets to go gosh, to a car. Oh,
1: just a just a uh, a whole uh, buffet of Jewish pigs. Oh
2: <laughs> man, those dudes were na- Al Goldstein was nasty, man.
1: It was like by the time I got there, no no one even really the audience never showed up there and no one was really listening. But you still sat there with three comics, you'd get up at six in the morning, go sit there for three hours to listen. Oh, to, keep you the whole time. to listen to Alex complain about
2: shit. No, and he would do those remotes like he'd do them at the Walnut Creek Punchline. Oh, the worst! He'd do in San He'd do They do. I think maybe Sacramento did them. They oh, they did Sacramento them everywhere, dude. The I
1: did it at a fitness center in Stockton or something. <laughs> fucking six in the morning, yeah. you're doing co- comedy at a fucking fitness center. I oh, don't man, wow, bro. Yeah, man, I remember all those guys up there. Bobby, Slay- Slayton, Bobby I Slayton, one of the best
2: ever. Bobby yeah. Slayton.
1: So when you started touring heavy, what, what year was that? When you're just doing like the when you really started to hit the clubs. So what you you go to the you do the ice house and then you do uh, Igby's for a while and then what you start to come into the improvs and you start doing. Then those? I start
2: going a little bit of the improv. Uh, I met Arsenio. It's funny. I had a I had a a time at the um at the improv on Melrose, and I would always talk my myself out of going. You know, ah, I'm not gonna go. You know, I'm going to go, I'm going to go, I'm going to go, 745. I'm not going to go. At that time, I wasn't going to go. I ended up going, and I meet Arsenio. His show had just started. It had been February of 89. And Scott LaRose had gone up before me. He's like, do you mind if I go ahead of you? Scott LaRose. While Scott Scott LaRose was up, Arsenio and his crew come in. I ended up getting Arsenio out of that. Scott LaRose went up because they had another time somewhere else. I think he ended up doing it later, but I became almost like a staple on Arsenio. That that helped a lot to to be able to –
1: that oh, when he first started you know, with the, t- yeah. the talk show, yeah. Are, yeah, Scott LaRose. I hadn't heard that name in a while. Getting pictures, Remember of he him. was doing
2: all the commercials, man. That dude did all the commercials That's for right. maybe a five or six year period, yeah. Him and Kevin
1: West was the other kid, Kevin West. He was at the oh. comedy store, little guy, Ooh. little mousy guy, kind of looks like Scott LaRose, man, crazy, dude. yeah. So, Arsenio, now, when did you like when you look at your audience, like from the beginning, is it like did you find that you had a, a pretty immediate Latino following? Was it big?
2: No, I was, uh, you know what? I was moderately amusing. You know, I wasn't edgy. I wasn't political. Yeah. I was doing stuff that, you know, um, that was more Latino, you know, flavored in, you know, some politics more about, you know, Taco Bell stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Heart named after that, that mundane shit, you know? So not, not really. And at that time, you know they weren't there wasn't really a, a huge amount of latinos even going to clubs why is that so, man so it's just it was just a different feeling for them you know that was always very very a white thing to do you know was yeah. to go to a comedy club so yeah. over the years they would start to come out they didn't really know how to behave they'd fight they'd be kind of like, shut the fuck up you know there's no decorum <laughs> they try to leave on checks uh-huh. and and, and and gradually, 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 they started to get an identity and know how to behave themselves when they went to a show. But when I started doing theaters, they would yell out shit like thinking they're helping. Yeah. There would be full-on blows in the <laughs> crowd. And, you know, I ended up, even back then, like I ended up hiring my own guys to patrol the room because yeah. without those guys, you couldn't get through your set.
1: But you were making most of your money just doing headlining sh- sets?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the 96, 97, I was already making over six figures uh a year.
1: Oh, so you were, good. you were one of those guys. You were like 96, Because I I never understood it, but you
2: got you did door deals back then, right? I did door deals and I remember because I did a lot of the improvs, um, and you'd stay two weeks like in Addison and that yeah. club's still there. Um, I would I my goal was, was sixteen shows in two weeks. My goal was to make a thousand dollars a show,
0: right. and
2: uh, you know, over a couple of years being there, I think I'd made like eighteen thousand. I was so happy that I would, you know, finally got to my goal of a thousand dollars a a show. But you could uh, it's, but on a door deal, you could have made more. Could have made more. You know, it wasn't. It was inconsistent. You know, yeah. and a lot of times, you know, sometimes you catch a good. week. So a lot of shows, and dude, all, and all that stuff. A lot That's of shows. A, Jesus, man, it's a lot of it's shows. Brutal.
1: So like, where'd you find it? Was, so you just built your reputation on the road. You were doing little TV sets here and there, regular on Arsenio. You do the Tonight Show with Carson or no?
2: I did. You I did? did? November of 91. Yeah, it's funny because uh, I was uh, a couple of months before that. I had auditioned for Shapiro West, uh, Diane Barnett. They had they had Jerry, you know, Jerry's show was on. And Macaulay was uh, at the, of course, Macaulay trolling. At the Melrose uh, Improv, the Booker, the Booker, and, yeah, uh, the Booker, John, uh, Jim McCauley. yeah, and I was I was up on stage, and he's looking at me. And he looks at uh, George Shapiro, and he goes, "You handle this kid right here." He goes, "No, we're looking at him." He goes, "Well, if you handle him, tell him you know to put some stuff together and to give me a call on a weekend to come by my office." And so when I got off, they go, "Hey, we think we got you the Tonight Show." Yeah, I'd fucking do anything, but they were standing right next to Jim McCauley. <laughs> and they did nothing. Got Diane Barnett, who God rest her soul. Told me on the phone, yelled at me when I was asking about showcases. Yelled at me. Nobody wants to see you on the phone. You don't understand. Nobody wants to see you. That was my manager, Shapiro West. That was Diane <laughs> Barnett. Fucking yelled at me. So you, nobody wants to see. So you signed with now, them after that, or you were working yeah, with them? But that was ready to go after that. Mr. Star on the Walk of Fame, syndication, fucking wax figure in the Madame Tussauds Wax Museum. Nobody wants to see you.
1: See, you you remember that, too, right? You'll never forget that. I
2: remember every motherfucking person. I remember every fucking ding, every dent. The greatest. I saw Marty Klein came to see me. God rest his soul. Great dude. One of the great agents, Marty Klein. Right. Marty Klein sees me at Igby's. I'm green, man. It's like 88, yeah. 89. Sees me, Harvey Elkin, who was, had everybody go through him at one time, literally the Broadway Danny Rose yeah. of, of fucking you know Hollywood comedians. He, Marty Klein signed me, didn't do anything with me. And then we went in there for a meeting, and Marty Klein doesn't know who the fuck I am. And, and he goes, well, who's your agent? It's Danny Robinson you know, Bud Robinson's son, was a younger guy, looked like the critic, you know, big stomach, you know, mustache. So they bring him into the office, and I'm standing there, and Marty Klein looks at uh, Danny uh, Robinson and goes, would you start to work on getting this kid some work? And he's like, you know, it's all for show. I know. And, And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And as he's leaving, Danny Robinson looks down at him, and he looks up and he goes, hey, nice shoes. Yeah. So cut to, I have my television show on. Yeah, It's been on like two years. Lowell Sanders is doing Comic View. He says, hey, will you introduce me Um uh, for Comic View? I said, nah, I'm working, dude. He goes, just, just it'll take five minutes, man. Just leave. You can introduce me, and then you can go back to work. I said, I don't know, Lowell, man. I was like, how can you leave, you know? So I left. I went over there, got out of my car. I'm still like in the show thing, like a suit. Yeah. Almost like... Almost like that scene in Goodfellas where they walk in, they go down the stairs, they go through the kitchen, they go through the back, he walks on the stage, I go, here's a guy, Lowell Sanders, they go crazy, I leave, I walk back out, people are like tapping me on the back, hey, George Lopez, all right, George Lopez, the last dude at the door is fucking Danny Robinson, and I walk up to him, I look down like this, I look up, I go, nice shoes, fucking took off. It's the last thing I said to him. Even. You're even. You know, it was, it was, it was the spite. You know, I don't think it's healthy. No, I know. But I think somebody who, 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 who succeeded against high odds knows, you know, when we were doing the television show, the woman who played my mother came in. She was an acting coach. She yeah. Went to school with Powers Booth. Was related, you know, worked with all these incredible actors. And she comes in one day and she's very demure. She's like, I need to ask you a question. I'm like, how did all this happen? Like, what motivated you? And I, I go, spite. Yeah. Fucking, I go, fucking spite. Me too, dude. And she goes, that's not very healthy. I said, hey, he goes, hey got your ass here. Oh, man. It, it is, is the, listen, spite for the person that can handle it can ride that shit like a rocket and it'll never let you down. You'll never run out of spite either. No, you
1: won't. I, I don't know if it's good, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I can't, when I was starting out, I can't tell you how many times I would call Dave Becky and go, why the fuck is that guy doing that? Who the fuck is that guy? He got it? How the fuck did that guy get that? But ultimately, my spite, it never paid off. Like, it, you know, I, I ended up turning things around in my fucking garage. So, I you know, I, I was never <laughs> never great at the spite, you know. Well,
2: you know, I listen, listen. I, you know, you and I don't really know each other. I saw you at the airport one time. We were always cordial to each other. When you we saw gave me a lift. But I did give you a lift. up. Yeah, I did a, yeah you saw me at the airport. Where, you're like, get in the car. I'll do come on, back in the car. Dude. When, 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 Barack, when the president did your show... I was so proud of you, man. As a comedian, as somebody in the trenches, I said, "Man, that's that's beautiful." Man.
1: Yeah, it was something else, man. It came over to my that's house. Amazing. Thanks, buddy, and thanks for the ride. Yeah. I, was, I didn't know. What- you're welcome, bro.
2: Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah,
1: <laughs> but uh, like, what was the big turning point, though? You know, you're making good money. You're married. That's going all right, I guess. And but you, when did the- you know what
2: the you know what the big you know what the crazy you know my my wife had a friend that yeah. was an agent at. Um, Ed Lamato's agent, big agent. She was like the secretary. And and she called. I was, still, I was living in a condo on Barham, maybe 1999. And she says to me, you know, there's somebody that wants to see you. He was working on this project with this producer. It's kind of hush-hush. He wants to come and see you Friday at the Ice House. I go to Ice House on Friday. I see him. I'm drinking on stage. I'm like, maybe this isn't the right thing to do for a showcase. But I'm killing yeah. him. They're laughing. I'm drinking on stage. Da, da, da. He leaves. And I don't see him, you know. And uh, I'm like, where did this guy go? I don't know. I don't know who you were looking for. A year later, almost to the month, I get a call, and he and he says to me, "Are you still interested in this idea?" I'm like, dude, I don't even know what the fuck you're talking about. What idea? You know, my 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 producing partner and I have an idea that you could be interesting for. Well, we found out it was Sandra Bullock, and Sandra Bullock came to see me at the Brea Improv. Imagine getting Sandra Bullock to leave her house above Marmont up there by where Jimmy Kimmel lives yeah. and to drive the 65 miles to the Brea Improv to sit there on a Thursday to watch me. And she did. And and as she, I said, follow me. And as she was following me, I kept waiting to see those headlights just veer off. Well, this is too fucking far. Yeah. And she came and she saw me and we had a meeting and we started to have more meetings and that became my show.
1: And and the that show like you know I don't think people realize that you know it went into
2: syndication and almost became bigger in syndication, right? It became bigger in syndication. Yeah, it was up against American Idol like the last three years. People love that show. Nickelodeon picked it up. My goal ultimately, you know, when we started to do the show and it looked like we might syndicate, my goal for me personally was to get the number for syndication. We were at one twenty. Yeah. But Also to be to be in production and syndication at the same time and the only reason the show didn't come back yeah. is alleged allegedly the president of ABC at that time was having relations with several actresses and his decisions were not based on performance of shows but they were based on where he could put these particular people into shows allegedly and then two years go by the guy is now a winemaker sends me a case of wine with a card that says you know I know you're upset with me and we don't we haven't talked. You know, if you get a chance, give me a call. I called him and he apologized for not picking my fucking show up and I'm like, you know, what good what good does that do me now? You fuck. We were, we were telling you that shit two years ago. So that spite didn't go away. No, I was doing my talk show at that time. So you know, as long as as long as there's somebody out there with an axe to grind, and uh, yeah. and they make a, they make a move on me, I'll always I'll always be successful. But so,
1: but the thing is that like George the, the George Lopez show, it you know it had a, it was it was doing all right. You're on a lot of years, right? Yep. But yep. then like it was one of those things where in syndication it picked up a whole new audience of young people, I bet I guess. And then yep. I, absolutely. And so is that where you really became? Because I'm just curious because I mean, watch, I watched a new special. We'll do it for half. I just watched it. Yep. And it, it, it's pretty clear that, you know, you're one of these people like, you know, you're kind of a, a, an inspiration and a role model and a, and a guy who speaks to the Latino community in a very right. personal way. So I imagine that groundwork got
2: laid with the George Lopez show, right? Right, right. You know, it's funny that, you know, when I first started to show up, um, you know, my wife had a higher opinion of me when we were married than when we were divorced. And she was like, usually oh, how well, it
1: works. That's usually how. It yeah. Works.
2: Don't kid yourself. You you were a draw. Like I only worked on the west side of Texas and over here. So all of that stuff was new. And in the beginning, I wasn't political at all. And as I started to look at things in the community and I started to have a voice in specials um, and started to take on politicians and politics that I started to lose a lot of people who would say of any particular color that they liked me before I got political. And then, you know, with the wall that we did two years ago in D.C. live with all the Trump stuff, like, you know, really became a wedge through, you know, both sides where people would, uh, you know, send me messages and threaten my life, all anonymous too, by the way. Sure. So, you know, I, I didn't grow up the toughest dude, but anybody who threatens my life anonymously is more than welcome to come and threaten me. When uh, I I tell them where I am, like that shit, don't scare me. Well, do you find that?
1: Are you finding that like within the Latino community? There's, you know, there's a defy because it seems like there's definitely two types of Latino
2: voters. I mean, yeah, there's three types. There's there's the type that vote, and there's a type that are Republican who look at it who look down on everybody, and then there's a type that could give a fuck, and then there's another type that aren't citizens and they can't vote. So. You know, I would always say that it's, it's up to us who can vote to be a voice for the workers that can't vote. Right. So those things became clear when you look at December, you know, they're putting people in camps. And then in the middle of April, they consider all of the farm workers the essential workers. Listen, nobody wants to do that shit for fun or for profit. It's a fucking hard job to do. And instead of being ridiculed and rounded up when you're taking your kids to school, they're out social respect that they show up every day and not only feed your family, but they feed themselves too. They're to feed their own family too.
1: Yeah, and then they're being used, being used as pawns by you know these monsters. And-, and then I
2: became the guy that talked a lot of shit that. You know, hey, you know, you, you made quite a success for yourself in this country. And if you don't like it here, stop bitching and fucking go back to Mexico. I'm fourth generation. I'm not from Mexico, and I really don't even know anybody in Mexico.
1: Now, have you ever been there?
2: Yeah, I've been there. But I bought a house in Hawaii in the, like, 2004 through 12, I lived in Hawaii. And they say, well, why wouldn't you buy a house in Mexico? And I'm like, Mexicans? <laughs> You know, if you grew up around them, why would the fuck you want to fucking go vacation around them? <laughs> I wanted to get away from them. Which island did you have a house on? In Lanai before Larry Ellison bought it. That was nice. He bought my house, man. It's like you know, we're trying to sell this. I got divorced. I have this huge ass house, you know, uh, twelve thousand square foot house in Hawaii. That you know, I'm I got left in the in the separation. You know, I got that house. you know, paying all these property taxes. I'm going over, bringing my friends' beautiful house. And when Larry Ellison buys the, the island, about the island. <laughs> I thought where's this guy going to live? <laughs> Boom. Bought my house. you know he was he was he was he was kinder than TBS, you know. He's like TBS was like you got 36 hours to get the fuck out of here. Larry Allison at least gave me 48 to make a decision. Yeah, you did good though. You good. When did you get sick, man? I got sick, you know, it's funny because uh I was born with uh, narrow ureters, which I found later was a uh a, a a case of being born early, the ureters didn't, um, you know, um, develop properly. So, um, what are your, u- what, what are your ureters? ureters Where were from the bladder, the, the tubes that take the urine, uh, from the bladder through the kidney oh. and out, you know, so you can urinate, okay. they were narrow, they were narrow. Uh-huh. And what it did was it made me have to go to the bathroom a lot. Yeah. But then, but then if I held it in, which I did a lot, you're backing that urine into your kidneys and you're poisoning yourself. Oh, you know, that's why when kids hold it, you're really backing. That was years of holding that urine back into my kidneys, which, which damaged them. And then it wasn't, you know, much like DL Hughley, you know, feigning on stage that he found out that he had, you know, COVID maybe if he doesn't faint on stage and he gets lightheaded in a hotel or at home, he probably wouldn't think that that's COVID. He probably would have thought, you know, I'm traveling again. Right. I haven't been eating. Yeah. So, uh, in, in in a way, it may have been the best thing that happened to him was to know early. With me, I was already on the road, just feeling horrible, bent over, and I couldn't understand why my back hurt. That was uh, all kidney disease. Oh, my so God. So I was, I was grinded, man. It was crazy.
1: Holy shit. So you were still married and you're, and, and how'd you, you talked to your wife out of a kidney?
2: No, you know, uh, it's funny, you know, um, when I when I found out I had advanced kidney disease, it's almost like in the movies, like you and I are talking, but you could see her sitting in a chair between us. Yeah. And the doctor comes in. He's like, "Hey, I don't know how to tell you this, man. but You got advanced kidney disease and you're going to need a kidney by the time you're 30. You're 45. I was 38. And she's there and she's like, I'll give you one of mine. And I'm like, you know, I relax. You yeah. just can't give kidneys to somebody without being tested. She was the only one tested she was a perfect match her mother was her mother god rest her soul wasn't sure if she should do it yeah so her and i had a conversation about if she wanted to and if she didn't want to i didn't feel like she should have i said i'll leave it up to you you know and uh, and she did saved my life and you know i've been i was very disingenuous to her but in reality you know it cost me a lot of money anyways to get married and divorced in california But if there's anything that I do appreciate out of all my spite and all the fact that I talk a lot of shit about people and even was disrespectful to her, which I should not have been, was that I'm very thankful that that after 15 years that she allowed me to, you know, continue my life. You know, you know, the same person that saved my life really made me want to fucking kill myself. But that's life. I guess. It's good. She let you
1: keep the kidney in the divorce.
2: Oh, everybody's like, you know, you're going to give her back the kidney fucking... Imagine going to get coffee in the morning and some lady says, you know, I think you're a fucking asshole for getting divorced for your wife to get a cat. I said, you know, lady, it's like 6.45 in the morning, you know? Did you get that kind of shit? Oh, man, yes. People were mad at you? They were mad at me, man. But, you know, I don't know. I, I You know, do you stay together for the sake of somebody,
1: you Cause, know? Yeah, because they gave you a kidney?
2: We had, we had a huge fight one time and she says, you should thank me every day for the way that you feel. And, you know, that's why they don't want donors to meet, because you could lay that guilt on somebody yeah. in a relationship. And I said, listen, if I could, I'd put my fist in my ass, pull it out of my asshole and throw it right back at you. So that's <laughs> how bad it gets right before you think, you know, maybe I should, you know, maybe I should be living in this house. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's weird that you do like, but it's, it, you have no choice but to be grateful
2: underneath it all. You know, you know I, I, nobody, you know, nobody gave me the chance. You talk about in the beginning, you know, yeah. you, you, there's a, there's a lack of appreciation that I didn't get until I, until I got older when I started to re- really become grateful for people who invested in me. Yeah. And, you know, and she was part of that, you know, divorce is contentious. You know, a kid involved, but you know, I must, I mistook that anger for the respect that I should have shown her for sure. saving my life.
1: Yeah, I mean, I look. I mean, I, I, I didn't have kids, but my second divorce completely bankrupted me, and I fucking hated her, and I hated her lawyer. But she got me sober, and I always give her credit for that. And I used to, uh, I used to thank her for it uh, every year. I just, uh, you know, and she hated me, man. I'd send her this uh, email to the other I just want to, you know, thank you again. It's my anniversary. I got another year sober thanks to you. And then finally, like just a couple years ago, she finally just said, "If I want to hear from you, I'll let you know."
0: <laughs> like,
1: all right, uh, that's done then. Yeah. There's no listen. There's no.
2: There's no, <laughs> no dissension like divorce dissension. No shit, dude. Even if you say, just go say hello. So like, no, oh, we hate each other. Just fucking go say hello. Yeah, no and good. Like no, 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 good. no good. It's not going to go anywhere. So the TBS show.
1: Are you? Are you? How's your spite level about that? In in the, in retrospect.
2: They were afraid, man. I mean, you know, Coonan and. Uh, uh, whatever that guy uh, white, whoever was the thing, you know they wanted they thought they wanted to get in business with me we were we told them we were gonna do what we did. they made conan conan's side or his people made TBS believe that if they didn't sign Conan, they were gonna lose him to fox masterful masterful move. yeah, so he comes in. I blame Jay Leno. Jay Leno should have lost a tonight show and like a man taken his millions and walked away that ten o'clock show put me in a position where I was going to lose my show. Conan was the host of the Tonight Show. Fucking Jay Leno goes there at 10 o'clock. Conan looks bad. Conan gets fired from the Tonight Show, comes over to TBS. I move to midnight, and this all happens because fucking Jay Leno couldn't just take his million-dollar checks and, and stay off TV.
1: So you blame Jay?
2: You know, I don't blame him, but... If he had just taken his hit like a man yeah. and not cock block and go to 10 p.m. Dude, you had the Tonight Show at 1130. You mean you're going to do a show at 10 p.m.? Give Conan a chance to succeed or fail on his own without you at 10 o'clock.
1: So, you know, you're not mad at Conan, though?
2: No, man, we're, we're cool. I don't, yeah. I'm not mad at anybody, you know. Yeah. I've, I, I, you know, I, I have little to complain about. It may appear, it may appear, but... Nah, I ha- I'm happy, man. I yeah. mean, but but with those things like that, when you trust somebody that you're in business with, yeah. and they completely lie to your face, that it's it, it's hurtful. Because I thought that that show was important as far as late night and diversity goes. You know, I they, these the people that did my show didn't want to do Conan show. They Conan show would call over. so remember. And say, how yeah. We get how can we get Sam Jackson to do our show? That they, they, they don't want to do it. So. Uh, you know, I was in a good spot there, and I, I wish I would have had. It's not, not maybe not something I would have liked to have done forever, but right. to get pushed out uh, when you had been playing ball all along was was a bit tough to accept.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, you've taken, you know, you've definitely taken a few shots in show business, but you got to play in the big
2: game. I got to play in the big leagues, baby. It's nothing's been nothing's been better than having shows named after you and uh, being able to, you know, meet some of the people that you admired growing up and become friends with them and. You know, I have this love of music, I have this love of concerts, and I I love golf. And I've been able to, you know, like I said in the beginning, go play the golf courses that I watched on TV as that kid that wrote threatening letters to himself in that back room in San Fernando. (laughs) And did your grandparents live to see any of your success? My grandmother lived to uh, 2009. Wow. And uh, my grandfather passed away at 64 in 1988.
1: So what'd your grandmother think of your success? Did she give you any credit then?
2: You know, she was, she was more complimentary to people that she would meet that would talk about me than she was to me. Oh. But, uh, but you know what? God bless her, man. I mean, you know, <laughs> I miss her every day. She had dementia and it was tough to look at somebody just kind of wither away. That yeah. was so, meant so much to me. Yeah. So, uh, but I miss her, man. And and, if I would have known I was going to miss her this much, I probably would have gone over there more.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's always the way. It's great talking to you, George. You look good. You, I'm glad you're doing it. well. I like the special. It was good. Thanks, brother. Appreciate right, it, I Right on. You take it yeah, easy. Let's talk to you. That was me and George Lopez. His new Netflix special, We'll Do It For Half, is now streaming globally. Globally. That was funny when he, uh, he remembered, or I reminded him, that he gave me a ride. It was almost like there was a moment there where he was like, uh, "Oh yeah, oh, I'm a nice guy. I am a nice guy. I yeah, actually, I did. I'm a, oh, see, I'm a nice guy." Anyway, that was a fun talk. All right, so now let's go out with some guitar. I, you know, I'm gonna clean this guitar up a little bit. I'm gonna clean it up. It's getting a little sloppy, but uh, but let's do it.